this is Madria Steven with the Working with Woes podcast. We had just finished the Basement Child series with, uh, I believe it was a discussion of emotional aspects of having gone through the traumas that I described in previous episodes. And now this series is a new one and it's going to be called The Shocks of Normalcy. And it'll be talking about um, just the adjustment into normal society after having left social services and foster care and my biological family behind. Later on, I do have an interview with Carl and Cecile, and you can hear the emotion in their voices. They're um, quite, quite happy to be part of this project. And I'll be talking a little bit about more of the aspects of caring for someone who's not easy to love, looking after someone, someone's heart that has been damaged. But that's later. <clears throat> to kick off this Shocks of Normalcy series, I thought we could talk a little bit about the science of pain. So I'll be talking a little bit about the biological basis. I'll keep it nice and simple because I realize that not everyone is a medical professional. <laughs> and uh, it's just fascinating, really, it just is. So. I'm just going to talk a little bit about that and then perhaps in the next episode I'll talk about my adjustments from moving into Carla and Cecile's into like adulthood and I'll talk a little bit about some of the development delays and uh, overdevelopments because I was too mature as well in some ways and I'll talk about a bit about that and uh, some of the adjustments and then I have an interview with Dr. Brian Kolb, a neuroscientist, neuropsychologist in Canada who uh, basically founded neuroscience as a field of study and he does talk about that and then also we kind of delve a bit into the significance of early intervention and then I threw a few curveball random questions while I had him on Zoom and he answered them all, took everything in stride. So I look forward to sharing those interviews with you later. So for now, let's talk about the science of heartache. There's a study from Queen's University and the University of Michigan. Also, it's uh, 2010 and the University of Kentucky where, you know, medications for pain seem to reduce emotional pain. How interesting is that? Now, this is not to say, hey, just take some uh, <laughs> prescriptions of some kind or over-the-counter meds and you won't feel any heartache. That's not true either. In fact, you'll probably dig yourself into a deeper hole if you do that. But what this study did was they gave a control group, which means just basically this group had nothing. So they were just normal people not taking anything, nothing. So they gave that control group nothing, but then they had another group that was selected and they took some medications like Tylenol and ibuprofen. And then they were asked to look at pictures or talk about really painful issues that happened recently in their lives. And the discovery is that the people who took Tylenol and Advil and sort of numbing medications felt less emotional distress when discussing these tough issues of their lives. The point of the study is to highlight that emotional pain equals physical pain. So there's a somatic experience. Somatic means body. So what happens is when you hurt emotionally, you hurt physically. And it's also reversible, right? When you hurt physically, you hurt 
emotionally, and that comes with dual regulation. The other study that's from Queen's University and all that, they actually did a different study that was like basically seeing about the somatic experience. So the same brain regions lit up in MRIs when viewing photos of previously loved ones that died as when their arm was burnt. So basically that's showing that there's a biological basis of pain. So it was the same brain regions that lit up when there was physical pain as when there was emotional pain. So this also shows the biological basis of love, right? It's like long duration and wound healing and all that. So love is equivalent to drugs, <laughs> essentially. So there are certain systems in the brain. There's like oxytocin, dopamine, serotonin. Those are all feel-good hormones that are released by certain parts of the brain. And when you are in love or when you're a drug addict, essentially these two things similarly uh, reinforce the reward system in the brain. This is coming from the limbic system. That's that very internal core part of your brain past the external cortex. And this has to do with um, learning and memory. It includes everything, your hippocampus, your amygdala, your emotional regulation, everything like that. There's all kinds of fancy names out there. So I'll just summarize it simply by calling it the limbic system. This study also amplified the fact that widows who were in love with their partners and stayed there long-term tended to die within six months after their loved ones passed away due to cardiovascular disease. So after their loved ones died, there was a 53% increase. And this was founded in 2018. So that's actually pretty recent. So this kind of shows that people depend on social connection for survival. And when people hurt, they seek answers and explanations, but sometimes they go in circles and there's just no answers, as is the case for me about my entire development. So one of the things that makes it hard to do without answers is accepting that it's over. There's no more mystery to solve. So the next part for me is that I, I will never be loved by my family, biological family. I will never be loved by them. No matter what I do, no matter what I say, I have literally done everything that I could. So I carry this unresolved grief with me every single day. So now I think what's next is to determine and fill the empty spaces in life as soon as possible. This has to do with environmental enrichment. So I am in the process of actually being able to identify specifically what these deficits are. And part of that comes with that constant physical ache. Like my heart hurts a lot. If somebody's crying really hard and I don't know them from a hole in the ground, my heart will physically hurt for them. So along with that physical and emotional pain connection, I'm learning about self-soothing. I do, I hug myself sometimes, <laughs> or I, I tell myself it's okay to cry, or you know, like I don't try to stifle it anymore. So with heartache and empathy, that high drive of empathy too, people who are very empathetic will feel this. They'll understand what this podcast is about because they feel the pain of other people, literally. I'll just go into that a little bit and then I'll carry on. So 
I was watching the Joker movie. Um, it's how the Joker became the Joker. And he had rough break after rough break after rough break. Nothing really positive happened, but he got beaten for like no reason. So in the introductory scenes of that movie, he gets beaten in the alley and they knock him down and they kick him. My biological mother would make me lie on the ground and stay still while she kicked me. She would kick my feet, she would kick my ribs, she would kick my stomach and it hurt. And I could feel the impact of that on my body while I watched that movie. And I had to remind myself in my head, this isn't real, you're not there, this isn't real, this is a movie, this is a fictional character, you can't help them, it's on TV. And it was a big TV too, so maybe that's why I felt it more, because I was right in the scene. With heartache and, and extreme empathy or extreme threat to your well-being or trauma, your brain releases a stress hormone called cortisol. Now, cortisol cannot be released when you have those feel-good hormones like oxytocin, dopamine, and serotonin. So cortisol is the opposite of those. This is the stress hormone. This is when the alarms are ringing in your head saying, this isn't right, I'm in danger. And so what that hormone does is it causes your muscles to swell. And when your muscles swell, that generates that fight or flight response and is the signal to a perceived threat of well-being. That tension can cause headaches, that tight chest, uh, stiffness, upset stomach. Your stomach gets upset, you know that knot of dread that you get in the pit of your stomach? I had that growing up. Every day when I came back from school, that's what I had in my belly. And that's because the blood is actually driven away from your digestive system so that your central nervous system is super active and your peripheral system is underactive. So constant cortisol release also increases the vulnerability of your immune system and it activates certain brain regions to do with addiction and withdrawal. So more like withdrawal, which is why people tend to defend their abusers because there's a biological basis to defend the thing that is essentially poisoning them, very much like drug addicts. And yes, I did defend my biological family very, very, very much because I didn't know better because I, I was but a wee lass. Typically, when trauma instances are not as chronic, like mine was lifelong, it was very chronic, but typical traumatic experiences tend to be like a one-time instance with some repercussions and the brain has the ability to readjust to the losses. Um, and their sort of normal basis. But because of my situation, I was born into awful. And so that is my basis, is that extremely accelerated condition of the body and the emotions. So my life is constant, is big losses. And now, finally, here in my 30s, I'm finally getting the awareness of how high and extreme those losses are and that I have no normal basis to return to. So my question is, how to recirculate these systems in healthy ways at this stage in life? And that's where I'm gonna go back to self-care, environmental enrichment, social connection, stability, creating that sense of belonging, a sense of home, helping other people, having fun. 
All of these things contribute towards what's called CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy and environmental enrichment. Sometimes lately, because my, my awareness is just so much more, like I just didn't know before. So I get down, you know, I, I see that lack of help and then I see in myself that lack of sort of self-help common sense that drives people to do well in life. Like I, I'm gonna use the term Pollyanna and I realize it's insulting to some people, I'm really sorry. But there are, you know, people who have it pretty good, right? And they have sort of this instinct to help themselves and then they do well in life. And I'm realizing in myself that I don't have that natural instinct. Like I will let people walk all over me because I just want to help people. But there comes a time where that's not okay. And usually when I realize that it's too late and then it's a crisis for me to stand up for myself. So I'm also realizing that there's many resources to help kids develop life skills. You know, there's programs, there are certain early interventions projects being developed, like the one that Brian Kolb is in, like the one Robin Gibb is in too. She's another neuroscientist um, in Canada and she's really helping to create nationwide early interventions like build healthy brains through child play. I really support that. I might get her for an interview, we'll see. But I'm, I'm sort of wondering, well, what about non-addict adults like me who need help to develop these skills? Where are the resources? There are none. Who's helping people in their 30s who seem to be doing okay but carry burdens that are too big to handle? Neuroscience is really great because it does talk about the alleles. This is epigenetics now, which is still part of the science of heartache, but it's so cool. So there's alleles. There's certain cells in your brain that are long and short, and these alleles help with genetic expression. So there's certain things that are passed on through your genetics that will activate or deactivate certain alleles, and that'll have to do with physical traits and character traits that pass on. So you can be adopted into a family right from birth and then meet up with a sibling, I don't know, when you're 40 and find out that you guys do the same things, you look alike, you didn't know the other existed, but you have all these things in common. It's these alleles that help with that. And the science of epigenetics is the study of the effect of environment and experiences on genetic expression. So there's a term here that summarizes all of that, <laughs> and that is called predisposure. Even in decision-making or um, emotional regulation, from childhood, your interaction with your parents, at school, all of that um, combines into genetic expression. Right from when you're a fetus, actually, the condition in your mother's womb does determine which alleles are long and short. That does turn into the passing on of genes. Or the suppression of genes. So some families seem to be able to just do well, like they just do well, and some don't. That's not to say you're predisposed and you're stuck with the destiny that you get. That is just saying there is a predisposure, and while you can choose to do well and help yourself, sometimes at the end of the day, 
it seems like with some people there is nothing you can do. There are some people that seem to win the lottery of life and yet they still make the stupidest decisions that are self-harming. Why? Because of this genetic predisposure. That's why. Sometimes people can do things that are self-harming but they don't even know it or it's like they can't help themselves. There's also certain things that come with this elevated stress. So the elevated stress that I'm talking about, that's the somatic experience, which has been mentioned before, that can be self-derived or externally derived, right? Internal versus external. So the people that do self-harming things like join gangs that are bad, commit crimes over and over and over, or become drug addicts, or the people who have had external issues, right? Like where you're born into a situation where you are simply not loved because you were born. That's just the way it happened. Okay, well, they'll have similarities in the way their body is reacting, but differences in how they respond. So the similarities in the body's responses is um, that process, again, of your brain processing emotional pain like physical pain. So your hormones will drop and your cortisol will spike and that will increase your blood pressure and your heart rate. And that is actually what leads to the cardiovascular disease, higher risks with increased sustained stress. So now I'm 35, but when I was 34, I had two major heart issues within the span of a year. In March of 2020, my heart fibrillated, and that's where your heart basically beats really fast in one region, and it sustains for about 15 to 20 seconds, and I knew exactly what it was, because that's what I was learning about. Like, I just pounded my chest and coughed to kind of reset my heart, because that's what you have to do, and there's not much you can do in the instance, because it's so short. Um, you can measure it though because there's troponin and other things in your blood that stay elevated But I didn't go because I knew there was nothing to be done anyway But I did grab my stethoscope and I listened afterwards because that's what we were learning about and uh, It's the first time that my heart sounded broken So that was very interesting and I felt pretty pretty bad the next day But I still exercised because I just wanted to get my heart back up and my cardiorespiratory capacity was way lower like I couldn't take deep breaths or sustain um, lack of breath for very long when I, before I could so anyway so I took care of myself there and then the second one was January of 2021 where I had myocarditis and that's where your heart muscle actually swells and it was because of a virus and I had actually heard in passing a doctor say something about Tylenol and ibuprofen to treat it and it wasn't for my patient it was for somebody else's but for some reason I remembered it <laughs> and then I tried it um, and it, it seemed to help and I had to take it more regularly than I was taking it because typically in that case you have to take it every two hours to try to reduce the pain of that heart swelling as fast as possible but I was taking it only about three times a day because I also wanted to see the amount of pain. I honestly think that part of the effect of that is because of the sustained stress that I've had both lately and lifelong. Like this isn't common in healthy individuals of about 30 years old. 
I guess the crux of this episode is that there is a scientific basis for the body connecting to the emotions. So people talk about self-care, you know, get fit, eat right, look good. But are they talking about loving yourself and loving other people? Kind of, but it's a selfish kind of love, right? If it feels good, do it, even if you shouldn't, right? Or, you know, you are number one. And it's like, sure, okay. But self-care is more than just doing what you want and getting what you want. It's more than that. Self-care is making sure that you do things right. Like actually right, having a moral compass, being a good person genuinely on the inside to yourself as well as externally to other people. And the interesting thing is with all of this research and these new developments and stuff, it's kind of neat because it is starting to create awareness of sincere goodness and sincere kindness because you can see if somebody is going to treat themselves like crap, they're probably not actually treating other people very well or if they are perhaps not for good reasons right like it's maybe because they want people to like them instead of actually caring about how this person feels when they receive that is a little bit of the science about pain i guess one of the things i can say about people with ptsd or cptsd in the elevation of that stress is that emotions get overwhelming and then people tend to forget like I forget that I've had respite or a break from crisis mode so when things get really stressful I forget all the good and I re-enter into extreme crisis mode immediately almost and then it's it's just like a sudden spike even knowing about it it's hard to gauge what to do and how to take care of yourself in that moment but sometimes lately, just lately, I've been able to kind of step back and be like, okay, well, I'm here now, I'm not there, and I'm trying to kind of reroute in the instance so that I can recondition my brain to a new normal basis since I didn't have a normal basis throughout my childhood. Yeah, so it's pretty crazy. We need social connection. We need that sense of home. We need that sense of belonging for ourselves. And what's interesting about that sense of home is I find that there's self-discovery. Like if everyone on the planet was allowed to buy an apartment or just to have an apartment, we'll say, and they could design it however they wanted, there would be a process of self-discovery. And fortunately, I have, have developed that sense of knowing myself, like what makes me comfortable, how I do things. That's just part of natural self-discovery. And when people are deprived of that sense of stability and that sense of home, they're just naturally going to be unhealthy and unhappy because people need stability and they need that sense of home. Sometimes, now going back to that, that hurting people seek answers, sometimes you're not given answers. For me, most of my things are left unacknowledged. Nobody's sorry, nobody cares from social services who knew and returned me back to hell at the age of seven to the people who were the hell. You know, nobody's sorry. They don't care. I'm nobody. I don't get my answers. I don't get explanations. So it's circles. I guess I can put a stop to the circle and just say, nope, I, I know this round 
I've been here, done it, not interesting anymore, not mysterious, nothing to be solved. The new query or the new mystery is what are my development delays? What are my development deficits that still show up today? Okay, I've identified them. I don't have a sense of home. I don't have a sense of stability. Okay, how do I solve that? Well, I don't know, it's different for everyone, right? So some people might be like, okay, I've saved up, I can buy a home, or I don't qualify for a mortgage. Um, what can I do to help that, right? So it's just navigating your own situation. Okay, here are the problems. Here's my personal deficit. This is looking at the plank in your own eye rather than looking at some slivers in other people's eyes. I've learned just from recently self-soothing because sometimes I do cry like uh, all this research and talking about PTSD, talking about my childhood, which are the worst moments of my life, talking about the worst people in my life, especially for this podcast series, it does get overwhelming because I feel the impact on my body and my emotions, right? Like it's hard, it's tough. That self-soothing, it really works. Like sometimes I'll just literally put my hands on my shoulders and just pat them. Or sometimes when I go to bed and I'm feeling really stressed, I'll curl my arm around myself as if I'm hugging myself, as if somebody's soothing. And if I need more soothing, I will rub my shoulder. I don't know, it's teaching a way of bonding with the self. In the Christian world, right, they say, love your neighbor as yourself. But people tend to do nice things for people without meaning it from their hearts. Well, the part that gets neglected about that is as yourself, as yourself, as yourself. You gotta love yourself. You just gotta. And love, that's, that's the question. What is love? Love is a choice. That's what it is. And it's supposed to be a good thing as long as it's both of those, a good thing and a choice, it will be long lasting. It is enduring. So self-love helps you to love life and love yourself, really. And it also helps people to see that you are a good person and to trust that you're a good person. If you treat yourself well, they'll see, okay, this person's treating themselves well. They might actually mean what they say to me. Obviously that's subjective, right? I hope that this was an interesting little chat about the science of heartache and a little bit about the science of PTSD, that crisis mode, somatic experiences, and emotional regulation as well as self-bonding. That's what I hope comes out of this. I hope somebody hears this and thinks, you know what? I can help myself even with a small little self-hug every day and a pep talk. One of the things that I did, <laughs> I feel a little silly <laughs> sharing it, but it does make a little bit of a difference, is I wrote out a bunch of positive stuff on different colored sticky notes. So I put your survival rate is 100%. Don't let life suck away your talents. And you know, one day I will have that home. I will have the family. I will have pets. I will find love. I will, I will, I will, I can. And I also put reminders too, like work hard, keep working hard, maintain your integrity, um, stand up for yourself with diplomacy. That means leaving the other person's dignity intact and just things like that. So I made about four different strands of these things with about 
maybe eight sticky notes and I double tape them and then I, I put them up on the walls in my room. And so sometimes when I'm using the toilet, I'll stare right at one and it'll say, you know, I am smart. I can be loved. Other people's cruelty towards me don't define me and what I believe I will achieve. It has things like that or trust God because I believe in God, right? So trust in whatever higher power it is out there that you believe in. Yeah, you just gotta place it tactfully. So I have one right across from the toilet. So when I'm using the toilet, guess what I see? I see a little pep talk that I wrote for myself. Um, when I'm laying in bed and I can't sleep and I open my eyes and I look at the wall, turn on the light, boom, there I can see another strand. When I'm gonna sit down at my keyboard and play piano with my headphones on, I see another strand of positive self messages. It's just a good way to get into your own head and it starts with the self, right? This is funny, I'm preaching a bit to the choir because I'm struggling in life, but things are turning around for the better, I think. And it's it just means a lot of hard work, but I'm realizing that I'm not necessarily as alone in everything as I thought I was. So there comes a time when you can help people and there comes a time when you can't. And that time when you can't is your time to realize and cache your resources. I think there could be a lot of good in the world and there should be a lot of good in the world, but it has to start with people being okay with themselves. And that is a lifelong process. So physical regulation, emotional regulation, eating properly. If you find you're always stressed and all that, take a break. Stop working through your lunch breaks. Take that lunch break, eat a good meal, sit outside for a bit, take a few deep breaths, and then tackle the rest of the day. It really makes a difference. There's a reason why it is <laughs> repeated so much everywhere because it really does work. That is episode one of the Shocks of Normalcy series. I hope that you guys enjoyed it. I actually liked talking about this because the human body is just fascinating like you need to regulate from micro to macro and some of the ways that I described in this episode are the micro regulations that lead to macro regulations and they all tie in like it's just fascinating human bodies and human souls and human hearts are amazing and so are human brains so because you have all of the above you are also amazing stay tuned for the next episode, I will talk a little bit about uh, the readjusting into living with Carl and Cecile next time. <laughs>